You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Great War episode 233. Over the next five days, you will see five episodes released for the podcast. These are not new episodes and have appeared on the Patreon feed when they were first released uh, over the last few years. I wanted to quickly explain why I decided to release them here on the main podcast feed. When I first started the Patreon campaign for the podcast, I didn't really know what kind of content would be appropriate to put behind the paywall. Along the way, I released some episodes on topics that I initially thought were ideal for this purpose, like events in Africa or, or China, but what I've come to realize is that by keeping that information off of the main podcast feed, I was doing a disservice to those events, a disservice that is so often done in history books, where the actions and sacrifices of individuals in those areas are forgotten simply due to omission. Unlike in books, I have the ability to fix this problem, and therefore over the next five days you will see three episodes on the African theater, an episode each for China and India during the war. I also want to point out that the episodes on Africa are a bit older, they're from 2016, so, so they may sound a, a little different. I hope you enjoy them, and as always, thank you for listening. Hello everyone and welcome. The History of the Great War Premium Episode 32. While much is written and talked about concerning the European theaters of the war, the theater that saw the longest duration of combat during the First World War was actually in East Africa. During the four years and three and a half months that the war would last in this theater, the German general Paul von Letvau Vorbeck would lead his troops against a variety of nations. Britain, South Africa, Belgium, India, Portugal, and others would all send troops into the German colony. During this time, Letov Vorbeck would become one of the most famous German generals of the war. His guerrilla campaign would become a celebrated model of resistance against an opponent with vastly greater resources. 
For most of the war, he would move around Africa while avoiding large confrontations and also attempting to suck in as many Allied resources as possible, which was a goal he would have some success in achieving. What the Allies found was that their general process of capturing territory did not work well when combating an enemy that did not really defend that territory like the Germans were doing on other fronts. This would result in three years of mainly British mistakes, while Latov Vorbeck uh, danced around their attempts at pinning him down. After the war, Latov Vorbeck would then be celebrated, in no small part due to the popularity of his own first-hand account of the campaign, but there was a dark side to the East African theater that simply cannot be ignored. Most of the accounts that you find about this area of the war are written by Europeans about Europeans, but African combatants were actually far more important. Over the four years of fighting hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of African combatants and carriers were marched around by the European armies. Hundreds of thousands would die while being asked to march 20 miles or more every day, receiving little food and essentially no medical care. Then there was the economic and societal damage that was caused by the war that wandered its way all over the German colony. Food, workers, and all kinds of resources were all stolen from the citizens in the name of keeping the armies moving and fed. When this induced hardship was then met by the worldwide flu epidemic of 1920, millions of Africans would die. The story of East Africa is a textbook example of how a narrative can easily be shifted by ignoring certain critical pieces of the story. Hopefully we can shed some light on it during the next three Patreon episodes. Today we will discuss the situation in the German colony before the war began, and then look at the opening moves of 1914. Then in episode 2 we will, we will continue the story during the most militarily active portion of the war, which was the years 1915 and 16, during which the Germans could still field a substantial number of troops. Then in the final episode we will take the story to the end of the war, when the Germans would actually be forced out of their colony altogether before learning of the end of the war in Europe. The third episode will close out by looking at the legacy of the theater and also the disastrous aftermath for the African citizens of German East Africa. Our story today starts not with a discussion of the Germans or the Europeans, but instead a group of individuals called the Ascari. The Ascari were professional soldiers that were trained by the Europeans in Africa. They were given training and equipment that would allow them to fight with mostly European methods. The motivations of the Ascari were hugely varied, with many seeking wealth and power that they hoped that they could gain through the Europeans, while others were just hoping for respect. Critically, once they became part of the Ascari, they were no longer considered Africans, either by the Europeans or the other Africans. They were different apart, and they would look down on the non-Ascari natives just like the Europeans did. This separation continued after their soldiering days were over, and instead of returning to their past lives, they would retire to communities formed completely of other Ascari. These men were critical to Vorbeck's war effort, and he always considered them to be of lesser quality than his European troops. And just so we're clear, this evaluation was based almost entirely due to deep-seated racism that Vorbeck harbored. 
Just like many other Europeans at the time, Vorbeck believed that the Africans needed white Europeans to lead them. And when describing his European officers, Vorbeck would often speak of how they had gained the respect of the Africans, like with Lieutenant Colonel uh, von Bock, who, who he would describe like this, quote, His true chivalry and fatherly care soon won him the hearts of his black comrades, to such a degree that he was in their eyes the bravest of all Germans, and they clung to him with touching loyalty. End quote. These types of descriptions were laced with racism that would run throughout all of Vorbeck's accounts of the campaign. Even though they were considered lesser than the Europeans and they were often treated very poorly, the Ascari never revolted against German rule. The British expected them to and based some of their war plans around this idea, but it never happened. The British Colonel Meinertshagen would say that he was impressed by the German Ascari, saying that, quote, they can stand a great deal of punishment and will stand up to gun and machine gun fire. Throughout most of the war, the German armed forces in East Africa were made up primarily of these African troops, with Europeans only being a minority within Vorbeck's forces. Another incredibly important group that is even less present in histories of the war are the carriers. Given the terrain and infrastructure of Africa at this point in history, it was critical that an army have many times its numbers and people just to carry supplies. There could be tens of thousands of these carriers at any given point in the campaign, carrying everything from food to ammunition. They were treated very poorly, and were often considered almost expendable. When more were needed, they were simply conscripted from villages on the path of the march, and they were generally paid something, but generally very little, given the amount of backbreaking and often deadly exertion that was required of them. We will talk more about the numbers of casualties among these carriers in episode 3, but just try to keep in mind that there are thousands of Africans who are trudging behind the combat troops all throughout Africa as they crisscrossed back and forth, sort of dodging battles. In his history of the war, Vorbeck would say that there was not a single African tribe that rose against the Germans, and that he did not have to divert a single squad to keep the natives in line. This was untrue, and the evidence of this starts before the war even began. The German colonies were prestige items for the German Empire. All great powers at the time had colonies, and so the Germans wanted to get in on the game. They were late entrance into the colonial quest due to Bismarck and his belief that Germany not only did not need colonies, but also, in fact, they would be detrimental and worthless uh, in terms of resources. Eventually, Bismarck would no longer control German policy, and the hunt for colonies was on. Many looked to colonies due to the economic benefits, but there was also some that saw them as a solution to the population problems that many believed Germany would face in the coming years, as their population continued to increase. Vorbeck was also of this mind, and he saw the colonies as a solution to possible overpopulation in Europe. As a general rule, the African colonies ruled by the Germans were not great places to live for native Africans. They were given very few rights, and the European settlers were essentially allowed to do whatever they wanted. This would then lead to a long series of rebellions from the native people of Africa against the Germans, and then these rebellions would lead to violent actions against them, and even worse treatment. It was just a very bad situation. Many historians consider the German colonies to be the second most brutal colonial regime in Africa, placing it behind only the Belgian Congo, which if you know anything about the Belgian Congo, is an incredibly low bar to beat. 
The rebellions did help the Germans prepare for the war, since it required the creation of a large police force called the Schutztruppe, who would, and it was also allowed their large number of Ascari to gain combat experience. In his work World War I, The African Front, An Imperial War on the Dark Continent, Edward Pace would say this of the German experiences in their colony before the war. Quote, Indeed, in the first decade of the 20th century, while the rest of the world turned a blind eye, German colonial troops honed scorched earth and bush warfare tactics against the indigenous inhabitants of German Southwest Africa and German East Africa, with the single-mindedness that Kitchener had neither willing nor able to contemplate in the Anglo-South African War, with results that can only be termed genocidal. Such thoroughness was ensured that Germany's larger African colonies, in marked contrast to the British, had mobilization procedures in place which in 1914 would prove every bit as effective at countering aggression from their colonial neighbors as they had for suppressing indigenous uprisings. End quote. All of these uprisings make it clear that the Germans did not have the support of the native population, but at the same time neither did the Allies. One Maasai tribesman would state that the overall native position was pretty much, it makes no difference to us whether the English or the Germans are our masters. One final bit of history we need to discuss before getting to the preparations for the war is the story of Latav Vorbeck himself. He had been born in 1870. His father had been a general in the Prussian army, and so he was enrolled in a military academy, from which he would graduate in 1888 and he would serve in an infantry regiment for the next 11 years. After the stint in the infantry, he would spend two years studying the colonies for the German general staff. Latov Vorbeck would be eventually promoted out of Europe. The reason for this promotion was the fact that while no one would ever accuse him of cowardice or laziness or even being poor at his job, he was not exactly the most popular of officers. This affected his ability to properly lead troops in the military and also made him a prime target for promotion to the colonies, in this case, German East Africa. The goals of the German troops in East Africa would change as the war progressed. This was mostly due to how long the war was going on, because just like everyone else, the colonial leaders of European colonies believed that the war would be short. If it was short, then it was important to hold on to as much colonial territory as possible when it ended, because the colonies were almost certainly going to play a role in the negotiations for peace. For German East Africa, this meant that Vorbeck would focus on keeping the Allies out of East Africa, if at all possible. In fact, in late August, the German colonial secretary in Berlin would draw up a list of colonial possessions that Germany would request when the war was over, the goal of which was to create a sort of Mittelafrika, a large block of German-controlled African colonies. But to accomplish this goal, they had to actually be in control of their existing colonies. This strategy of trying to hold as much territory as possible would continue for most of 1915. However, after this point, it was clear that the war would drag on for a while, so a different set of objectives emerged. The political aims of defending the colony mostly evaporated, and instead the goal just became to continue to resist and to tie down as many Allied resources as possible. This would be where Latav Vorbeck would have his greatest successes, just basically acting as a distraction and a diversion. When the war started, the majority of the forces available in the colony came from the security forces that existed when the war started. 
For the Germans, this meant a force of 2,400 professional Askari would be joined by 2,150 African police officers and 1,000 Askari reserves. These numbers for security forces was not abnormal in Africa at this time, with the British East Africa and Uganda having roughly similar numbers. These African troops would be joined by a bit over 200 Europeans. These Europeans were generally in the colony in the hopes of gaining wealth and adventure. They had been paid double what German soldiers were paid in Europe, and they received large pieces of territory that were larger than some European countries. These troops were not the sum total of the forces that would be used during the war. After war was declared, the governor of German East Africa, Heinrich Schnee, would issue a decree which told all of the Germans in the colony that they were expected to defend to the death the soil of German East Africa which had been entrusted to us. The Germans that had not been part of the military before the war would be an important source of manpower for Lutov Vorbeck. Many of these men had been professional hunters or other adventurous individuals who would fight the war as if it was a sport. Vorbeck would arrange these Europeans into their own units in 1914, with two companies being made up entirely of the Europeans. There would also be white officers in the units that were made up of Africans. Latov Vorbeck preferred this arrangement, believing that the European units were of higher quality and that the African units had to be led by Europeans to be effective. As I said, very racist. This arrangement uh, would eventually break down due to casualties, and after 1915 the European companies would be broken up to fill the ranks of the other units, and to make sure that above everything else, the Ascari units always had Europeans in all leadership positions. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. When Latov Vorbeck arrived in the colony and took over as leader of the defense, he brought with him some different ideas around how the colony should be defended. Those who had been in the colony longer, and the colonial leaders in 1914, believed that the best course of action was to launch a guerrilla war or a bushkrieg. They felt that this plan was required due to the fact that the colonial defenders would almost certainly be outnumbered by the British invaders. There were also concerns that a conflict on the European scale with large armies would strain the colony too much and would lead to more native uprisings. Latov Vorbeck disagreed with all of them, and as soon as he arrived in January 1914, he began to transform the forces available to him to be closer to the European model. His goal was to fight a more conventional war, a war of movement. These types of operations would require more soldiers, more supplies, and more infrastructure, and it also required large movements from his army, which would put more pressure on the soldiers and carriers as they moved around. 
all of this would prove to be beyond the power of German East African forces, and after a long stalemate, the attempts at strategy would be abandoned by Latav Vorbeck in the second half of the war, which was when he would basically resort to Bushkrieg, just like the colonial people wanted at the beginning. Even though the German colonial governor, Heinrich Schnee, would eventually send out that notice to all the Germans that they were expected to do their duty, his mindset was different when the war started. Schnee believed that the colony should and could remain neutral during a European war. Now, this was in part due to Article 11 of the Congo Act of 1885, which was signed by all of the major colonial nations of Europe. It read, quote, this is a pretty long quote, but here it is. In case a power exercising rights of sovereignty or protectorate in the countries mentioned in Article 1, which was a bunch of colonies, and placed under the free trade system, shall be involved in a war, then the highest signatory parties to the present act, which was all of Europe basically, and those who shall hereafter adopt it, bind themselves to lend their good offices in order that the territories belonging to this power, comprised in the conventional free trade zone, shall by the common consent of this power and of the other belligerents or belligerents be placed during the war under the rule of neutrality and considered as belonging to a non-belligerent state, the belligerents thenceforth abstaining from extending hostilities to the territories thus neutralized and from using them as a base for warlike operations." In accordance with this agreement, Schnee believed that the colony would remain neutral, and therefore he declared its neutrality and declared that its two main ports, Dar es Salaam and Tanga, would remain open ports for the rest of the war. This forced the German warship Königsberg to put to sea immediately, or it would have had to have been interned uh, for the rest of the war. Latav Vorbeck was not a supporter of these actions. He believed that declaring the ports as opened was basically just going to give them to the British. He believed that the British would land troops and then march them into East Africa, completely disrespecting the Declaration of Neutrality. The Tom Vorbeck would win this argument with Schnee, and in fact almost all of the colonial leadership group would soon consider Letvau Vorbeck the person in charge, not the colonial governor. On August 15th, in the first military action in the African colonies, Vorbeck sent the German captains von Prince and Herring to take a force of Iskari and Europeans to capture the village of Tavida. Now, Tavida was just over 10 miles over the border with British East Africa, which was considered a valuable target for the Germans to take and hold because it controlled the best route that the British could take into the German colony. This was not the only force that was sent towards objectives, with other forces being moved towards Lake Tangaika. Uh, this lake was critical due to its role in providing north-to-south mobility for the German forces. The fighting around Lake Tangika would not be a quick success that Tavita was, and the fighting on the lake would continue well into 1915, and we'll talk about it a lot next week. Two other objectives were on Vorbeck's list in these opening actions, Lake Victoria and the Northern Railroad. These targets were also important because they would provide greater mobility to the German forces. However, both of the attacks sent towards them would be unsuccessful. Over the next six weeks, September and early October 1914, Tavita would be the key launching pad for raids into British territory. Many of these raids focused around the Uganda Railway. Uh, the war at this point was still very almost casual, with Lewis Harcourt, the British Secretary of State for the Colonies, referring to all of this as all very thrilling. 
This was still at a point where most people thought that the war would be over soon, so these small colonial actions were just a bit of a game. But for one group of people, it was not a very fun game. The African troops on both sides. When they had entered into military service, they'd been mostly for peacekeeping and internal security, but now they were in a real conflict and were marching all over Africa under the orders of the Europeans. Things did begin to calm down, and during the first week of October, the pace of raiding from September was just unsustainable, and so the Germans needed a break. And what they were doing was not working very well anyway, with most of the raids not producing the expected results or the haul of supplies that was hoped. In general, the theater would stay pretty quiet until the British decided that it was time to get a bit more serious about the situation, and that meant landing troops on the coast. The British were planning to invade German East Africa from the sea in early November, and this would be in the form of a two-pronged attack, one landing at Tanga and the other at Longido. The assault on Tanga would go forward first, with November 2nd set as the start date. It would be commanded by General Aitken and would be executed by troops from India. Aitken had no experience in campaigning in Africa, and he would only meet his direct subordinates a few days before the operation. The forces were not well supplied with heavy equipment, with just 14 machine guns and a few small artillery pieces. They would also go directly onto the beaches from their ships, which had been loaded in India, without any stop along the way to sort things out or to recover from the voyage. As I'm sure you can tell, this is not going to go very well. Letal Vorbeck was prepared for the landings, and he was prepared to defend the city, even though Schnee wanted it to be abandoned. Vorbeck knew that he probably could not completely stop the landings if they were well organized, he would be outnumbered several times over, but he hoped that he could disrupt the British landings, slow them down, and then withdraw inland where he would be better able to resist. To try and reduce the effectiveness of the British numerical advantage, Vorbeck planned to try and draw them into house-to-house fighting within Tanga itself. The landings, when they were executed by the British, were almost a textbook example of how not to execute an amphibious operation. The first problem was that the British would delay landings for 24 hours after giving the proper notifications to the, th- to, to the authorities in Tanga. This allowed Latav Vorbeck to move down more troops into the region, and it just kept the Indian troops on their ships even longer. The men on the ships were not the highest quality troops in the British Empire. All of those had already been sent to Europe. They did not have much experience, and they had even less experience with amphibious operations. To make matters worse, they would be landing at night in a rainstorm, and a very difficult situation would just be added on top of by a walk of the last 300 meters in chest-deep water all the way to the beach. And then they had to march and fight after not sleeping. It was bad. The first troops were ambushed on their way into Tanga, and they would be pushed back. Then the British pushed further forward towards Tanga, and Vorbeck was able to launch an attack against their flank. This caused a good amount of panic, and the British troops, which had reached the outskirts of the city, were forced to retreat. Overall, the whole battle would be over by 5.30 in the afternoon. Even though things had went incredibly well, Vorbeck knew that he could not push his luck into the next day, and instead of staying to fight, he began to prepare to pull his troops out of the city. The quick defeat of the British landing force came as a huge shock to the British commanders. The commander on the scene was just as shaken as anybody else. Because of this, he sent reports to Aitken that painted a very bleak picture. With all of this near panic, the British began to negotiate with Vorbeck for an evacuation. This sounds really bad, and it was. But in some ways, the British were lucky. 
Vorbeck had made the choice to not counterattack after, after the British attack had been stopped, and this had allowed the British some time to recover and to begin the evacuation. One of the British officers, a Captain Evans, would say that, quote, if the enemy had been at all enterprising, they might have mounted their maxims on the cliffs above the beach and wiped out the whole force. Even though the evacuation began successfully, the British were still incredibly concerned about the situation, and they took an important step a few days later on November 5th. It was on this day that Aitken decided that the evacuation had to happen faster, and therefore all heavy items should be left behind. This provided Vorbeck with a gold mine of items, including eight machine guns, 450 rifles, half a million rounds of ammunition, coats, blankets, and telephone gear. All of this was essentially priceless to Vorbeck, since so much of it was completely unattainable in Africa. The losses at Tango were quite small on both sides, with the British losing between 800 and 1800 dead, wounded, and missing. Now, I realize that's a pretty wide spread, but the numbers are a bit all over the place, and that's something you should probably get used to, because over the next two episodes, they're not going to get any more solid. The Germans probably lost about a hundred, although I don't have great sources on that. There were several immediate consequences. The first was that the British sacked Major General Aitken, who was demoted and placed on half pay for the rest of the war. He would spend the next decade trying to clear his name. It also caused the war office in London to remove Africa from the responsibility of the colonial and Indian offices, and instead bring it under the direct control from London. This would cause the British to be far more cautious with future actions, and it meant that when they came back, it would be an overwhelming force. This was very similar to what happened to the Middle Eastern theater after the disaster at Kut Alamara. In many ways, if the goal of the German defenders was to tie down as many British resources as possible, the victory at Tango was in some ways far too complete. It scared the British off instead of drawing them in further, and this meant that the resources that would have went to maintaining a British force in East Africa were just diverted elsewhere. Latev Vorbeck did hope that such a decisive victory would cause the colonial government and people of the colony to more fully support the war effort, and in this he was partially successful. After Tanga, the entire theater would kind of settle down. The British would maintain a defensive stance in their colonies, and Vorbeck would centralize his forces around Tanga and continue raiding. During this time, the German forces slowly grew due to the recruiting of a large number of Africans. This meant that the German forces would balloon up to between 16,000 and 20,000 men. This gave Vorbeck far more striking power, but also made the supply situation even more precarious. Another problem for Vorbeck was that he was running short of European officers, and while his forces would continue to grow, the number of Europeans available to him did not increase at the same rate. This was further exacerbated by the Battle of Jossen, during which one-seventh of the German officers in Latov Vorbeck's forces were killed. That battle would happen in early 1915. Overall, the first six months of the war in Africa had been action-packed, and things we're just getting started. I hope you'll join me next episode as we look at the second part of the war in East Africa.